Before we get into the Word, and we're going to be looking at Acts 14 today, um, let me tell you how exciting I am to be here. Uh, it's really an honor and a privilege, and uh, I know y'all, y'all don't know me, but there's many other church plants and churches in North Texas that are very excited about what God is doing here at Mosaic in East Waco, for the city, all the, the ripples, we're excited about it. And, you know, it's a little bit, let's call it what it is, it's a little bit out of the box. And that's a good thing, and we need a lot more of it. So um, press on. And um, actually, just, you know, when you have somebody come and preach for you or try to be your buddy, you know, you, you don't know them from Adam and... Um, I would love just to tell you a little bit, a little about myself. Um, I am up the road in Dallas. Uh, my wife Kelly and I moved here three years ago um, to plant New City, Dallas. And if you have friends, family, in anywhere near East Dallas, tell them to look us up because I mean we're building the ship as we sail. So. Um, I came to faith in a church plant. And so church planting is near to my heart because it totally changed. I did not move to D.C. thinking I was going to be on some fast track to becoming a pastor. But um, the vision of a church that is embodying grace for neighbors, I mean, guys, that's electric. So it's so exciting uh, to see what God can do among you here. Um, I didn't really have a sense of what God was calling me to do until I went to seminary in St. Louis at Covenant Seminary, and I joined a church that was made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. I didn't have a category for that. Uh, our church in D.C. was not that way, but our neighborhood church in St. Louis was, and as I came to understand what grace means through the lives of brothers and sisters from Rwanda, from Nepal, from Burma, uh, longtime residents of South City, St. Louis, I saw the gospel in a, not in a different light, in a fuller light. And I want you to know that the deeper you press into this community, the more the New Testament and the Old Testament are going to start to make sense. And that is exciting, too. So, um, so happy to be with y'all. And uh, actually, two weeks ago, got to spend some time with the Thompsons up in St. Louis for a conference called the Reconciliation and Justice Conference. If that piques your interest, uh, ask Slim to send you one of his favorite audio, because all of the um, lectures and talks were, are recorded. Um, but the highlight of our, our time together two, week, two weeks ago, and Slim and I were talking about this actually Friday, 
The highlight was getting to go and have a dinner with two retired pastors, two retired pastors who have spent their lives, their decades, their families, everything all in on this vision of grace unifying the tribes. And these pastors are really some of the leaders, at least in the, the Presbyterian church in America, of, of helping see the necessity of cross-cultural Christian fellowship. Cross-cultural Christian fellowship. And so we had the opportunity to share a dinner with these two pastors, and our group asked them lots of questions, and we were just really just soaking up their wisdom and um, asking them to encourage us as we are just getting started, as you all are. But um, what the, one of the pastors shared a little bit of personal struggle that he's been, his family's been going through, in particular over the last year. He shared the story of a grandson who just a few months ago uh, tragically died from an overdose. Uh, one of his own grandsons, um, they had, he had to do the funeral for him as this grandson got wrapped up in um, just in tough stuff, and he ended up dying. He told us, the pastor told us the story of another grandson who had been involved in another bad group of guys and got and ended up shooting somebody and is locked up. Had his life changed in meeting Christ, converted, became a follower of Jesus in the midst of a prison cell, and you kind of see the poles of the costliness of pursuing a life of following Christ in hard places. Um, this, This was a very tender moment as he shared this with us. And then as we're really just um, trying to absorb what he's sharing, this pastor's wife told us about the time that uh, a bullet had come through their kitchen window and lodged itself in the living room wall. So here's Slim and his wife and me and my wife and a couple other others of us that are just early on getting started, trying to press into the hard places with the gospel. And we hear these stories and we're just thinking, wow, that sounds, that sounds like a lot. I don't know how many of you can relate to that. I don't know how many of you can uh, readily identify that kind of costliness uh, for the gospel. But as I listened to these, these stories, what I heard next was the most disarming thing. The pastor told us, he said, I don't know what you think about when you hear this, but just remember, at the end of the day, we're all just beggars looking for bread. We're all just beggars looking for bread. Remember, we've just been doing the very basics. We've just been doing the very basics. Perhaps, as you have gotten to know Mosaic, or if this is your first time visiting, as you're beginning to try to wrap your head around this community and their vision, uh, perhaps it seems like an extraordinary thing being done. Well, it is. But guess what? According to our scriptures, 
cross-cultural Christian fellowship is just the basics. It's the normal outworking of grace getting hold of a community. That's exciting. So I want to look at um, this passage with you, and I hope you'll be able to see the basics laid out for us in Acts 14. I'm going to ask you before we read this uh, to ask yourself as we approach the text, would I say this is like the, the special ops? Paul and Barnabas in Central Asia and Turkey, is that, is that like special ops Christianity? Or is that what our pastor friend said? Is that the basics? Um, so I believe it's the basics. Now, uh, it's a little interesting for a visiting pastor. I don't know what to make of this, Slim, but you gave me a whole chapter to go through? Um, have mercy. We're, we're hungry for chicken and waffles, but um, here's what I want you to know about this chapter. It is one of the most dramatic chapters in all of the New Testament. It's very fast-paced, lots of action. Lots, Paul, goes, Paul and Barnabas are going to three different cities. They're church planting, you guys. They are church planting on a frontier. It's so cool. The big idea of this chapter is that the kingdom of God brings unrivaled satisfaction but unmistakable tribulation. Unrivaled satisfaction but unmistakable tribulation. Sounds like Ida B. Wells. She could teach us about that, I'm sure. Um, we're going to look at... Paul and Barnabas and what they experience as they travel and church plant in these three different communities. And we're going to look at their mission, we're going to look at their witness, and we're going to look at their power. Their mission, their witness, and their power, all right? So um, let me just give you a little bit of context before we read Acts 14. Who were Paul and Barnabas? A lot of us have heard these names all of our lives, but let me just try to draw out a couple uh, important biographical details about Barnabas and Paul. Um, Barnabas is a native of Cyprus, okay? He came from the island of Cyprus. He came from a Levitical family. He was from the priestly class of uh, Judaism, and Barnabas shows up all over the book of Acts, all over the letters of the New Testament. He's kind of like, almost like this undercover apostle. Um, some believe, and I, I actually am one of them, that uh, Barnabas may have been the author of the book of Hebrews, uh, keeping with his undercover identity. We could talk, or you can ask Slim and Malcolm what they think about that. But um, Barnabas is one of the real instrumental behind-the-scenes uh, kingdom workers. He helps, he helps uh, make peace between Paul and the disciples in Jerusalem, and he plays a really critical role in this missionary journey. Now, um, Paul, on the other hand, is, is a little bit more familiar, a little more known to us. Paul famously uh, also is not a Jerusalem native. Paul was from Tarsus, which is in modern-day southern Turkey. Um, so you have actually... Both Paul and Barnabas were, were not Jerusalem insiders. They lived kind of on the fringes of uh, the Israelites. So 
Paul was a student, a scholar, a, a student of Gamaliel. And uh, of course, he's most famous to us as a persecutor in the early chapters of Acts, a persecutor of Christians, famously standing at the mob, killing Stephen, approving of their actions. Uh, They laid their garments at at Saul's feet. Uh, Saul was described as ravaging the church. He's so bloodthirsty, he says, I'm going to chase those guys down wherever they go. So he seeks letters to go to Damascus so he can persecute Christians. Of course, on that road to Damascus, he has this famous transformative moment when he meets Jesus himself. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus tells Paul some very interesting words in that that meeting. He tells Paul that you are a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles before the, before the outsiders. Paul, I'm going to use you, Israelite scholar, to take the gospel to the outsiders, to the foreigners, to the Gentiles. Um, you will carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for bearing my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, Paul and Barnabas get in cahoots together and find themselves uh, many years later in the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch is in uh, modern-day northern Syria. The church of Antioch is famously the first place where, well, let's see who's on the rolls in the church in Antioch. You've got a Libyan, you've got a black African, you've got Jews, you've got Romans, you've got Greeks. What on earth are we going to call this tribe? And they called them Christians. That is the context for our own identity. Barnabas and Paul are at work for about a year in that church, training them, helping them make the connections, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, that God's grace was always intended for the nations. As those nations start coming together, electricity happens in Antioch, and they say, we've got to get this out. We've got to get this to the people. And so they commission and send Barnabas and Paul uh, to go on a missionary journey, and you know where they go? They go, to the, they go to the place they know. They go to their, their hometowns, their backyard. They start in Barnabas' home of Cyprus, travel through the island, sharing the gospel, and then they leave there and they go into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And they, they make their way um, into another Antioch. And how much, Slim, did you preach through the whole chapter last week? <laughs> My goodness. I just gave you all, like, pretty much half the book of Acts. So, these brothers, armed with this message of cross-cultural reconciliation through the blood of Jesus Christ, are making their way through the towns of Central Asia Minor, Central Turkey. And that's where I want to pick up 
Um, when we come to this first town, the town of Iconium, if you have Acts 14 in front of you, we are going to start reading. In verse 1, Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and that that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So, this is the mission to people who ought to know. Their first starting place is they go to where would you go? You you go to the synagogue. Why? Because Israel's Messiah has come in fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, just like they did in the former Antioch. They start in the synagogue, and they, as they preach, as they teach, as they draw out the, the really helpful Old Testament scriptures, people believe. It says a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Awesome. <laughs> Mosaic Iconium is growing. It's bursting at the seams. We better find a middle school to have our worship service. Uh-oh, but what happens? When the kingdom advances, unavoidable tribulation, we got to expect it. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Who's caught off guard by this? Not Paul, not Barnabas. They dig in. Look at verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking weekly. Hey, take this. I got some good news to share. Maybe what? No. Speaking boldly. Speaking boldly for the Lord. And the Lord is also speaking through them. The Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace by, continuing in verse 3, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Signs and wonders. Can you think of any signs and wonders that Paul and Barnabas are responsible for? They, uh, they, they, they cast out demons. They heal. And we're, in fact, we're going to see in the next town one of these signs and wonders that is done by their hands. But, but it has, as the gospel comes to this community in Iconium, it has a polarizing effect. Look at verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some sided with the apostles. Now, isn't that interesting? When the gospel comes, look at who it makes strange bedfellows. Jew and Gentile hate each other, and yet the Jews who were resistant to Paul and Barnabas' message of inclusion, they are making alignment with the, the establishment of Iconium to persecute the Christians. And so, in verse 5, an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. But verse 6, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia and the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Pretty intense. Pretty intense scene, mosaic Iconium just getting off the ground. Let's look at what happens when they get to Lystra, the mission in Lystra. Uh, this is the mission to people who don't know any better. 
Iconium was the mission to people who ought to know better. Lystra is the mission to people who don't know any better. Verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began walking. Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. Verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, and this is where it gets crazy, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Verse 12, Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes. Did you know that the Greek gods are in the Bible? I mean, this is crazy stuff. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Verse 13, uh uh-oh, they don't have a chicken and waffle. They're, They're about to do some brisket. Verse 13, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you the gospel. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain, empty things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. I mean, we're about to get a taste of the satisfaction that comes from food and gladness. And Paul is essentially making a common grace argument saying that even if you never heard the gospel, you still could know enough about the character of God to revere the one true living God and not revere, not worship, not give yourself over to other vain, empty things. This fellowship, this if, if you think of the greatest feast you can imagine, and chicken and waffles might be there for me, um, enhance, take that and multiply it exponentially. That's what Paul is trying to help these, um, these guys in Lystra connect the dots so that they would understand that the giver of these good things, the, the source of true satisfaction is Jesus Christ. Now, this uh, setting is a, this is a this is kind of like a frontier town. Uh, people are are wild. It, you can see it's a really volatile place uh, because uh, as soon as they 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 talk the the crowd down, um, the the events change. So, verse eighteen, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. You know, the volatility on the frontier is real. The, the cost on the frontier of ministry, 
of seeking to live out God's kingdom as he's called us to on the frontier is, it's volatile. You can't predict where you think you might be with your neighbors. And then next minute, what in the world just happened? Um, we work with a lot of Congolese refugees. And, um, I mean, I've, I've been getting to know this community for about three years now. And I, I probably know them better than I know any of the other people groups we work with. But, I mean, I'm just getting, we're just getting warmed up. It's a long invitation to pursue this kind of uh, fellowship together. And these people are impressionable, and they're persuaded by the, the Jews who come from Antioch and Iconium. Paul gets um, stoned and left and thought, thought to be dead. They drag him out of the city, supposing he's dead. And that sets us up for the last mission, which is... Don't worry, it's very short. Uh, to the city of Derby, Verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, again, everyone thinks Paul, is, he's been stoned. Everyone thinks he's dead. He rose up and he entered the city. He went back into Lystra. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Here's what happens in Derby. We get one, one single verse. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, I know we just walked through a whole chapter of Scripture, which is actually pretty cool because... Uh, you know, how many times can you say you read through a whole chapter of the Bible on a Sunday? But that's just the mission. That's the mission. I want to talk about the significance of their witness and the significance of the power that Barnabas and Paul are, are displaying for us. You see, in every place God's people go, they don't just go with a, a a formula. They don't just go with, hey, like, if we can say these 10 Bible verses in this setting and the conditions will be just right, the people will believe, and voila, we've done our mission. No, they go with word and deed. Make no mistake, every church plant that they work on, they are diving deep into the word. They are doing hardcore exegesis and making the connections Old Testament and saying, no, 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 this, it all points to Jesus. Masterful teachers, master classes on how the scriptures all predicted the sufferings of this Savior, of this Messiah. But they don't just have words. Where does the credibility in Christian witness in 2020 going to come from? People know the stories. I mean, they think they do. Most people actually haven't heard the good news of grace. But, but people generally are familiar with what we have to offer. The, 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 the power in the attraction of the witness comes from word and deed. Lives that are embodying this in a shocking and disarming way. 
the gospel coming to the Gentiles. Good news that what God promised to the fathers, uh, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. Let it be known, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to anyone and everyone who believes. And they're freed from everything that they couldn't be freed from in the law of Moses. That's the word, the deeds, the deeds of mercy, healing. Going to the margins. You know, the central tension leading up to Acts 15, the central tension in the book of Acts leading up to Acts 15 is this Jew-Gentile question. Insider-outsider. My tribe, your tribe. How is this going to go down in the church? How has it gone? Malcolm, come back up here. I mean, come. how has it gone down in our history? In Waco, in Dallas, my hometown of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, it is not a pretty picture. How is it? Paul's first letter to the Galatians, there's no more Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. How is it that our churches don't reflect it? We have to go to the, to the margins. We've got to go embody this. It's not just a bunch of logic that we're trying to spit out for people. We're trying to live it and invite them to come to the feast. That's the credibility of their witness. What about the power? What about the power of Barnabas and Paul? To be sure, ap- apostolic era, crazy, equipping, Holy Spirit. Is, I mean, you know the Acts, are in our Bibles it says the Acts of the Apostles, but it should say the Acts of the Holy Spirit. All of this is Spirit-empowered. All of this is Spirit-empowered. No different. But where does the power come from? The power comes from Paul and Barnabas living the life of their Savior. From from walking the route of Golgotha, taking up their cross, and following their Savior. Don't be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes. We read it in the Confession of Sin. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you, Jesus? Excuse me, Messiah? We do not think this way in our Christian walks. We do not think this way about suffering. But remember what my earlier question was. What's the normal path of discipleship? What's the normal path the kingdom takes as it claims, as God's family claims, sons and daughters from every tribe and tongue and nation? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You want to know what the power of Barnabas and Paul is, the power is Paul is laying on the ground, just been stoned. He gets back up and goes back into the city. And then he goes down the road to the next town and plants another church. And now when by the time he's planted that church in Derby, and they've made many disciples, he's only about 60 miles from his home, his hometown of Tarsus. 
he could easily chill and cruise down the road and make it home, having just been through what he experienced. But what do Barnabas and Paul do? They go back in to the, to the lion's den. They go back into the belly of the beast. They go back to the towns where they've just planted these churches and been persecuted. And how do they go? On their own strength? Of course not. In the power of the Spirit, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them, building them up, strengthening them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I know that sounds heavy. (laughs) And I know it's very foreign. It is very foreign from probably most of our experience. We need the testimony of Ida B. Wells. We need the testimony of our neighbor who we've never even seen before or thought to ask, tell me about your life. Tell me what you've seen, what you've been through. Tell me what you're going through right now. How can I come alongside you and encourage you and strengthen you and bear the same burden that you're carrying? What else did Jesus come to do? What else will God's people do as we seek to work out this same shocking message, this same incredible invitation that we have to be his witnesses, reliant on spirit power, not Slim's best thinking or Malcolm's polish, but spirit power to press into the dark places that the gospel has to displace Oh, so many things I would just love to keep basking in with y'all. It sounds heavy, but it's not. Jesus, on the way to the cross, for the joy that was set before him, endured so that we might be brought in. Paul, on the road to Damascus, Jesus, Paul, why are you persecuting me? I'm going to teach you how much you'll come to bear and understand my suffering. And as you and I suffer, not not needlessly, but on the frontier, for the sake of the kingdom, we are more deeply united with the sacrifice of our Savior. I long for that joy. I long for our churches to embody that kind of witness. Our world is so hungry for this kind of credible presentation of the invitation to union with Christ. Let me pray and uh, ask Slim to come and keep, keep leading us. Father,